Welcome to Resilient Minds 365, where we discuss the resilient stories of entrepreneurs, professionals, and students with mental illnesses to encourage you to strive, thrive, and live in abundance. I'm your host, Cleone Crawford. Today, guys, we have a special guest with us. His name is Jay Schiffman. Who is Jay Schiffman? Well, Jay Schiffman is a public speaker. He's a coach, and he's the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He interviews people with lived experience on the topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery, and drug use, and policy to help end stigma and normalize difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. With that said, I present to you Jay Schiffman. Hi, Jay. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. No problem, no problem. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your profession, how long you've been doing it, and um, yeah, what it entails. Yeah, well, I, um, I'd say the easiest way to describe my profession is I love talking about difficult topics. That's, that's what makes me happy. Um, I, I've been doing this work for about five years. I've been doing it full time for the last two. Uh, I was I was doing it on the side for about uh, three years, and, and thanks to a, a career coach of mine, you know, she was helping me understand that I was I was living under a lot of limiting beliefs. You know, I was saying, oh, I could never do this full time, blah blah blah. And what's ridiculous about that is that that's a lot of what Choose Your Struggle stands for, and I didn't even realize that I was doing it myself. So. Uh, I launched this business in 2000, January of 2019. I've been doing it full time ever since. And, uh, you know, this has been a really interesting year for this work. It's been a year that's caused me to pivot because, you know, as a public speaker, obviously, uh, that does not exist in 2020. So um, that's been difficult, but it's really allowed me to get back to my why and make sure that I was always doing things that were helping others. And, you know, when you do that, you really can't go wrong. Definitely, definitely. So I know with public speaking, that's actually something I'm going into as well. I'm learning about the business of public speaking. Um, it has been a bit challenging, but there are a lot of, one thing that 2020 has definitely opened up for public speakers is virtual events. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have been doing a lot of virtual events, which is interesting, but um, people have had to do a lot of pivoting with, um, with that part of the business, which is interesting. So with that said, we're going to dive right into the interview. And so we're going to ask the first question is, what is your mental health diagnosis and when were you diagnosed? Yeah, so that's a, a sort of a tricky one for me. I, I was diagnosed with ADHD as a preteen and um, later had other things added to that depression, anxiety, as unfortunately a lot of people are, OCD. Um, Fortunately for me, though, when, when I was in my mid-teens, my therapist saw sort of the perfect storm of, you know, I was a, a kid with um, ADHD who was taking high levels of medication for that in the, the late 90s, which was when a lot of these drug companies were rolling out new things, and I was trying on all of them. Uh, when you take that and you add it to the normal experience of a kid going through puberty, and we all remember what that was like, and then on top of that, you know, a person with some mental health struggles, it creates a perfect storm. And my therapist, instead of seeing this, said, you know, it seems to me that these are signs of a larger issue. Unfortunately, he was wrong, but he gave me the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which I lived with wow. for the next uh, decade or so. Um, 
Now, like I said, that was a misdiagnosis, which is something it took me a decade to realize. Uh, but for a long time, I was on all these medications. And unfortunately for me, not only did it not make me better, but I was looking around and other people were getting better with this and I was getting worse. And, and that's really what led to my spiral and my downfall. Wow. Interesting. So maybe you can go into telling us a little bit deeper into your mental health story of resilience. What did you have to do to, to kind of um, come back from your lowest points and everything? Yeah, so my lowest point was really a year long. Um, in the summer of 2009, I attempted suicide twice. Uh, I overdosed the second time. I spent three weeks in a lockdown unit, three months in a long-term care facility. And, and it wasn't until leaving that long-term care facility that I really started to come back up. But what I see as my actual rock bottom moment was the day after I left that long-term care facility. And uh, I set out to drive cross country from the Berkshires in Massachusetts, uh, where I was at this long-term care facility, to Arizona, where I was gonna live with my grandparents. And that's where I ended up going through detox. Uh, but a day into this journey, I was uh, passing through New York City and I got T-boned by a cab and it, it, it bent the rear driver's side wheel of my car completely inwards. Now, I know what most people think. Oh, well, he put it in a, in a shop and it took him another week to get. Nope, I decided to keep going on my road trip, even though my car can barely drive. Not the greatest decision in a life of a lot of questionable decisions. So um, that next day, I'm driving through a blizzard in Pennsylvania. And if you've never driven through this, this, these hills, they're giant. And there are these holes cut through the mountains that are barely big enough for a car and a truck. And here I am holding my car, you know, going forward on, on three wheels, really on willpower alone. Um, I blew that tire I, and I spun out into a ditch at one point, I had to walk a mile on the highway. Um, you know, and finally after driving for probably 10 hours and making it only four, uh, you know, what should have taken me four hours? I gave up and I pulled off into a small town called Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And I'll never forget Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Mm. And it was January 2nd of 2010. And, uh, I pulled into this dirty truck stop motel and, and that's where I really consider my rock bottom moment because I was all alone. I had just made this giant leap to check myself out of the long-term care facility. And uh, I did what a lot of people struggle with substance misuse or, or mental health do. And I reached out to a higher power and uh, nobody came. And that's when I really felt, okay, I am more alone than I ever thought possible. Mm -hmm. But after that, after this breakdown, uh, I decided, you know what, if I'm going to get better, I'm going to put my recovery on my back because I'm the only one I got, you know, it's going to come down to me. And if I don't do this, it's not going to happen. And uh, the next day I got up and rented a car and continued on my road trip and went through detox. It took me almost four months to do step down detox and never stopped. It kept moving forward from there, repairing my life, rebuilding my life and uh, now I'm at a point where for the last five years, I've dedicated myself to this mission of ending the stigma around these issues and making sure the people who were, you know, in the same place that I was are getting the help that they deserve. Wow, that's amazing. So tell me a little bit more about your experience in the mental health ward. Um, how is it like? Um, what are some good things, bad things? Um, <laughs> I'm interested. Well, so I saw sort of both sides of this, right? The three weeks in the lockdown unit were very different than my three months in the long-term care facility. And the, the lockdown unit, 
honestly, it's what you see in the movies isn't that wrong. You know, there are some that are absurd, but if you see, if you watch the movie, it's kind of a funny story, which I truly, I showed it to my wife not long ago because she'd asked this question too. What was it like being in lockdown? And mm-hmm. I showed her this movie and I said, this is similar. I mean, this is, they get this right, you know? Um, it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you don't, you can't wear a belt. You have no shoelaces. You shower with the door open because they're afraid you may kill yourself. And, but there's also friendships. There's also, um, you know, I I don't, (laughs) I wish I could say that I like got better there and I didn't, but what I did do is, is get to know other incredible people. And, you know, we were all in that together for three weeks. I was really relying on these people. I, you know, coincidentally enough, I'm, I'm, there's a, a young woman that I've become friends with in England who is currently in, on a lockdown unit and we've been exchanging Facebook messages. And, um, you know, I, I feel so strongly for her because it's bringing back memories for me about being there. And so mm-hmm. I sent her some stuff like, um, you know, Sudoku and WordFind magazines and stuff like that, that really help uh, days in there because you got to keep your your mind going or it's very easy to be sucked down into holy shit look at where I am and, and that depression will get you um, mm-hmm. and you know I remember uh, there was a young woman I, I used to be an athlete uh, and I was a young young woman who uh, was on a college basketball team who was also in there and we petitioned to get the uh, the gym open so she and I could play one-on-one and you know mm-hmm. stuff like that where it was just finding any way we could uh, between group sessions and, and meetings with our therapist to, to keep our minds off of where our lives were because if you, if you sort of step back, it, it's really easy to go, how the hell did I get here? Wow, wow. I, te- I can definitely understand what it is to be in a mental health um, ward and in lockdown, I've been in the, because um, I have bipolar. So um, I've been in the, I've been hospitalized actually 26 times. Mm. So I've had, I've definitely had the experience (laughs) and being in lockdown, it's, 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 uh, yeah, the movies sometimes are correct. Um, The things that you see, it's, you know, where they do take off your your shoelaces and your belts and um, you can't have any sharp things. Mm -hmm. You can't have any cameras. Um, So you can't have your phone because your phone has a camera. Right. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, and then you have to wear the same clothes that everyone else is wearing. And it's just, yeah, it's not, it's funny. Like you said that you didn't necessarily get better in there, but I I, I personally think that the hospitals um, are not necessarily the best place for people with mental health challenges to get them better. Like for some people, it, it it's a good way to kind of just get a break from, from things. But I don't know if they're necessarily the best place for rehabilitation. I think- I, I definitely agree. I, 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 you know, like I said, I kind of got both sides of this, that the lockdown unit you know, was very strict. Um, and, and it was, it is a wonderful place. If you just, if you've reached the point where you are a danger to yourself. Yes. Having somebody, you know, be put there for a short amount of time, there are worse things. Now, when I was at the long-term care facility, and by the way, I say long-term care facility because we don't use the word mental institution anymore. Um, But when I was there, now this was one of the nicest places in in the country for these facilities. It's in Mm -hmm. the Berkshires in Massachusetts. Um, You know, it's a very beautiful setting. 
Uh, it's where uh, Norman Rockwell is from, this small town. So if you picture his sort of idyllic American, you know, uh, paintings, that's what this town looked like. But it was a place of incredible suffering because you get there and it's almost like, you know, it's open-ended and, and it's, it's really a, if you've made it to this point, you're in a really rough spot. And, um, you know, nobody there is in a great place because we're all stuck together and we're all making the best of it. You know, again, I met some incredible people, some of whom I still talk to. Um, and, and we did things like, you know, watch football games and, and, and uh, play outside and uh, go to, we had a, we had an art department in a, in a workshop and, you know, all of those things are happening, but there's uh, your, your, your just normal base level of happiness is way lower because you're every day waking up and going, how the hell did I get here? And, and how do I get out of this? And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, there are people that get better there. There are people who never leave there and there are some who, who don't survive. And, you know, it, it is a, a very traumatic place. Um, and it's something that I've, I've spent years since dealing with my experience being in this, in this, uh, facility. And so uh, the way that our country sort of handles issues of mental health and substance misuse is just downright terrible. And, yeah. you know, hopefully we'll continue to make the small progress as we have the last couple of years. But, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm pessimistic, but I'm more like, let's, you know, show me your, show me you're going to do this before I'll believe you. Right, right. So you did mention that you were misdiagnosed with bipolar. What was that like having the, um, those years of um, being misdiagnosed and um, I guess possibly taking medication for it? I'm assuming. Yeah, that's what I was, that's what I, my substance misuse was all around my medications for my bipolar disorder. Ah, so what was it like? Um, explain to me what that whole period was like. So in my mid teens is when I got the diagnosis and I started getting. Uh, being treated for it as a 19 year old right before I left for college 18 19 and uh first it was you know just we're gonna try this and then we're gonna try that and that's how we kind of treat mental health goals so let's try this thing okay that didn't work let's try that thing and um so so as it got more and more it got to a point where by the time I was 21 I was walking around with a backpack on everywhere I went and that backpack was just full of pill canisters and I've been asked before on on these interviews was there ever a red flag? You know, because like I said, I had this diagnosis and I truly believed my diagnosis that I was bipolar, even though not only was I not getting better, I was getting worse because of all the medication. Mm-hmm. And there was red flags. In fact, the, the first one was uh, I, I was going on a trip with my fraternity brothers and I'm going through a TSA in New York City. I think it was JFK. Mm-hmm. And I get pulled out of line and searched, and I mean rubber glove searched. And it was because my backpack full of pill canisters had been a flag for them of, hey, this guy's a drug dealer. And it was because there were so many pill canisters, they could not believe I wasn't a drug dealer. And I had to show them, look, my name is on all of them. The therapist who prescribed them is on all of them. This is not a, you know, some ruse. These are my drugs. And they were like, there's no way. There's no way somebody's walking around on this many drugs. And uh, that should have been an eye-opening experience, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I was so convinced of my own illness. And so by the time I'm 23, again, at this point, I've been living with this diagnosis for almost a decade. I've been treated for it for over half a decade. 
and I'm not getting better, it's easy to understand why I lost hope. You know, I'm, I'm waking up every day to the, and, and, and if I don't immediately take a handful of pills, I'm going through withdrawals. And uh, the days that I don't do it quick enough, I spend the morning curled around my bathroom toilet uh, going, you know, terrible, terrible withdrawal symptoms. And instead of getting better, like, uh, like my therapist says I'm supposed to, I'm getting worse. And so that's why I finally lost hope. I said, you know what, this is my life. It's not going to get better. And I don't want to live this way. Wow. So tell us more about your, I believe that when I was reading your bio, you talked about um, suicide attempts. So what happened? What were your triggers? What, what caused you to say, you know what? No, I'm, I'm done. And how was, and what helped you to stop? What caused so, you to like I was saying, I, I had given up hope, but, but yes. I, I was, you know, those of us who struggle, it's very easy to think back on that period and only talk about the bad parts, but there were good too. You know, um, that summer I'd spent about six weeks following a band that I loved around the country, uh, basically living out of my car, you know, in tents. And, and that was a wonderful period. And, and yeah. in those places, I was around people that made me feel accepted right everybody is is using a lot of drugs everyone's weird everyone is decked out in crazy clothes I was having a wonderful time because I felt accepted there and then that ends and I come home and that's when I sort of have this realization that I've been doing this for half a decade now I'm getting worse you know I, I don't have a job I'm not in school I my only friends that are still around me are the people that I'm struggling with drugs with this isn't the life I want to live and so I dumped out what I thought was going to be a lethal dosage of my medications on my computer. And I called a friend to tell her I was going to commit suicide. And uh, lucky, luckily for me, she texted a couple of other friends of ours who rushed over to stop me. And as I say, when I speak, that could have been the end of my story. Like, look, I, I attempted suicide. I failed, you know, and then I got better. But that wasn't the case. The next night, learning from my mistake the night before, I took the pills first and then called the exact same friend. Wow. And this time she texts the same friends who said, <laughs> we're going to call 911. And um, my last memory, because I was going through overdose, I, I, I had taken, you know, basically an entire pill bottle worth of different medications. Um, my last memory is a cop showing up at my house because this is the United States and this is how we treat people struggling with their mental health. Um, I was put in handcuffs. I was let out of my house. And my last memory was a cop throwing me roughly into his back seat and having my head slammed into the side of his, his car because he missed throwing me in the back seat. Um, and the next thing I remember was a day later, uh, I sort of had a very movie-like experience where my consciousness rushed back at me and I looked around and I'm in scrubs, um, my shoes are gone and I'm in the intake of this lockdown unit. And I literally said, where the fuck am I? Yeah. Uh, I'd spent the night before a handcuffed to a vet at the hospital. Um, I have like brief snippets of memories from that night of like begging people to let me go of like coming to handcuffed to a bed and like screaming. And then I'm out again, you know, uh, going through this overdose. Um, but, but I, just having no idea what's going on around me and had to be told all, you know, everything that happened between that cop arresting me or, or, you know, taking me in and then arriving at this lockdown unit. Wow. That is a very sad experience. That's horrible. Like, 
you would think, you would just think that someone who's sick, that you would bring an ambulance. <laughs> yeah. That would be the likely um, response is that someone who's, you know, you know, suffering from an overdose, that the ambulance would come, they would take them, they would check them out, they bring them to the hospital because right. they're sick. And then from there, then maybe they would be brought to a psychiatric ward or whatever because of being assessed, not to jail. And that's the sad thing is that people criminalize people yeah. with mental health challenges when they should be, um, you know, actually maybe, I guess, either hospitalize them or treating them a bit better than what they're doing. It's crazy. Yeah, you know, I've, I tell that story a lot. And, and I've, I've started inserting um, sort of a, a warning beforehand. And, and what I ask of people, when I tell this on stage, is I say, look, what I'm going to say today is probably going to upset you. Yeah. It's going to get emotions out of you. Now, I would like you to practice a little bit of mindfulness with me. Yes. When you are feeling this emotion, figure out why. Is it A, that you're upset by what I'm telling you, which is it's supposed to be. That is the goal of what I am telling you. Mm -hmm. Or is it B, that you truly believe that something I'm saying is incorrect? Mm -hmm. And then come talk to me. Because I can't tell you how many times I told that story and people came up screaming at me afterwards. How dare you disparage the police? And it's like, <laughs> look, I'm literally telling my story I'm not disparaging anyone. That cop could have killed me, you know, that, that, that I'm lucky that he, I got to the hospital. If I had actually gone into overdose in his backseat, 99 times out of a hundred, I would have died in the backseat of that cop car right. because he had no idea. It, it's not his fault. He had no idea how to save my life. Why was he there in the first place? Exactly. Our system is broken. And then, you know, this, uh, a couple months ago, when uh, there was a young man named Walter in Philadelphia who was murdered by the police while going through an issue, a, a struggle of mental health. And I posted about this and I said, look, clearly all of you who've been telling me for years, years that I was wrong, that things had gotten better, I could have been Walter. The only difference is that Walter is black and I'm white. My white skin saved me that night Absolutely. if I was black. I would be Walter. I would be shot by the cops or maybe the cop doesn't even take me straight to the hospital. Maybe he actually takes me to jail first and I go through, I go through overdose in a jail cell. Who knows? Um, All I know is that A, that cop shouldn't have been at my door in the first place. Our system is so broken that a 911 call of a person who just attempted suicide sends a cop instead of an ambulance, that's screwed up. And number two, you have two very similar circumstances, me and Walter. I am a wealthy white guy. Walter is a, is a guy living in poverty who is black. He dies, I live. One thing that isn't in common there is what I just described. You can't tell me this system isn't broken. Yes, definitely. It's really sad. We spend too much, we spend way too much time criminalizing our mental health challenge, people with mental health challenges. Yeah. I'm very sorry that you had to go through that. I can, I can understand. Um, I've had a situation as well for myself with the police um, where I was having a breakdown and rather than the ambulance being called, <laughs> I was sent to jail. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just, it was just quite traumatic for me, but what they needed to have sent me, they, what they, what needed to have happened is I needed to be in the hospital mm -hmm. because I was having a breakdown, but they just didn't see that. They just saw me as a criminal. She was acting out of things. So therefore she needs to be in jail. Right. Which makes no sense at all.
I'm so sorry that that you had to go through that. That is absolutely in, indefensible and and just terrible. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But you know what? I'm gonna be hopeful. I'm gonna be hopeful that in the next few years, with people like us telling our stories and you know being open, that there will be reform in in the system and things will get better. Well, we're definitely seeing small steps. You know, I just literally right before I jumped on here, read an article about how in Minnesota, you know, they were attempting to defund the police after the terrible, terrible murder there in the spring. And of course, politics got in the way and that didn't happen. Uh, and they finally succeeded in moving eight million from police budget to uh, mental health instead. Now, yeah. yes, that is a wonderful victory. Eight million for mental health is eight million that wasn't there yesterday. That's wonderful. Sadly, the police budget was 180 million. So yeah. you're talking not even, I mean, just minuscule amounts, right? So, and, and this, you know, uh, last year before all of this, I was at a, I was at a conference uh, for um, substance misuse and uh, President Trump was being applauded for, for giving money to, to this cause. And I, I, I pulled aside one of the organizers and I said, I got to ask you this question. Now, President Trump is giving money to substance misuse more than any other president. And sadly, that's because he gave any money to substance misuse. He's the first president to actually direct money from the, from the budget to substance misuse. And I said, why are we applauding this? Why can't we say, because it was, it was 8 billion, which for those may sound like a big number, mm -hmm. uh, but that's spread out among 50 states, all of them getting it equally. And our, our budget is trillions of dollars, right? Yes. So I said, why are we not able to say, hey, you know, what is equivalent of about half a penny, uh, it, ain't, it ain't good enough. You know, this is, uh, it's, it's, it'd be like giving the coronavirus half a penny, right? I mean, it's just not good enough. Mm -hmm. And the person said, that's not how we do things. We have to applaud this money. And I was like, eh. I'm going to skip that session because I don't believe in, first off, I don't believe in applauding that person anyways. But second off, <laughs> I think it's okay to say to someone, you know, I really appreciate you doing this. Eight billion is, like I said, it's eight billion that wasn't there yesterday. So thank you. I need you to understand that that's not even, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to what's needed here. And yeah. especially when our, our defense is getting a trillion dollars, I think you can cut a little bit more from that and give it to the people who are struggling. So I, I'm not willing to applaud. You know, it's like how um, this year uh, Joe Biden was applauded for saying that people struggling with substance misuse deserve love. Yeah, we do. You know what else we don't deserve? A president, unfortunately, and Joe Biden, who is the reason why so many young black and brown Americans are in jail. He wrote the crime bill. And so it's like, yeah, man, I feel you. I really appreciate you saying that about your son. How about other people's sons? How about other people's daughters? You know, we need to be going beyond. We need to be willing to say, God, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. Right. Definitely. 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 Wow. Awesome story. So my next question here is, what did you have to do to overcome or bounce back from your lowest points? Can you list all the resources that were applicable to that? <clears throat> well, the night that I hit rock bottom in that, in that uh, dirty truck stop motel in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, what I needed was sort of the moment to, to mourn. You know, I, I had just checked myself out of this long-term care facility because 
Uh, I wanted to get off my medication. My therapist didn't want me to. Um, and I was like, you know what? I think I'm right. I think I have a misdiagnosis. Uh, the only way I'm going to get better is by getting off this medication. I got to get out of here. But here I was a day later, uh, two days later, and I was feeling more alone than I ever felt. And so I had sort of come from this incredible high of leaving this place, believing in myself to this incredible low in a two day span. Mm. And so what I needed was that moment to say, <laughs> okay, this is horrible, but now you're gonna go forward. Now you're gonna go back up from here. And you've reached the point you never thought you would be, but the good news is it's not getting any worse. This is, this is as bad as it's gonna be. So that recognition for me was huge. I also am incredibly, just so incredibly lucky that I went to live with my grandmother and grandfather in a small town outside of Sedona, Arizona. And my grandmother is a saint of a woman. She's still my best friend. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she was willing to let me basically do nothing other than just try to survive over the next couple of months. You know, uh, there were days where she came into my room crying at the amount of pain I was in. Uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, I was just in a horrible place because detox is rough. Yes. And the detox I was going through was called step down detox because I was on so many medications that if I just stopped all of them at one time, I would have literally died. I, I Cold turkey would have killed me. So I had to do what's called step down where you take a little bit less and a little bit less. And unfortunately, unlike cold turkey where it's horrible for a couple of days and then you're good, mine took months of that feeling. It was awful. And she was just my cheerleader, my best friend, my support system. Um, you know, I, I couldn't have got through it without her. So I really have to thank her for that. Okay. Wow. All right. So my next question is, what are three things that you wish you had available when you were at your lowest point? Yeah, well, I could say number one, someone who had been there who, who could hold my hand. And, and that's why I do the coaching. Um, that's why I, whenever I go on interviews, I'd say, please reach out to me if you need anything, because I've been where you are. Um, you know, I, you can't get any lower than attempting suicide twice in a two day span mm -hmm. uh, and then going through overdose. So, you know, I've been there. So please reach out if you need someone to talk to it, not even, yes, I would love to be your coach, but also just to sit there and talk to you and tell you it's going to be okay. Um, that's number one. Number two, uh, you know, my family was supportive to an extent, but they didn't understand. And, and I think that we are making that progress talking about these things. So sort of a societal awareness and people doing what you and I are doing did right. not exist 10 years ago. Um, and so doing this now is just so incredibly important because we're we're making it possible for people who are struggling to be able to say see there are people who understand yeah uh, so that's that's number two and you know i would say that at that lowest point you know honestly being somewhere other than johnstown pennsylvania i, I rag on johnstown a lot uh, and it's it's a very small kind of dirty industrial town um it's just not I'm sure there are wonderful people there, but it's not where you want to be on January 2nd when you are completely alone in the world, right? I want to be somewhere where I can, I can call on someone. I can say, I need help. Not in the middle of nowhere, sitting in a truck stop motel, eating a pop tart for dinner because the gas station next door is the only thing open. So anywhere else, a, a spaceship to get me out of Johnstown would have been number three. 
<laughs> that's good. That's good. So my, uh, one of my next questions is, so what words of hope can you give to our listeners? Well, so I would say kind of hearkening back to what you and I were just saying that um, it is getting better. You know, yes, on a grand scale, it's almost depressing to see these baby steps because you're like, we have literally a marathon to run and we're arguing over, you know, should we go two feet or three feet, right? So in that sense, it's very demoralizing. But in the cultural sense, we are making incredible progress. You know, I couldn't do what I do 10 years ago. It just wouldn't, it just didn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, where the stigma around these things are still just ridiculous. But I'm moving to Philadelphia where people talk about these things openly. And so there are areas where we have turned a corner and, and we as a country are getting there. You know, we yesterday, a couple of days ago, the House voted to legalize uh, cannabis, which is incredible. I was arrested for this 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? right. And, and now here we are, the, the people, like the, the old rich white men that we were all raging against are the ones pushing for cannabis to be legal. It is incredible how far we've come on that. So recognizing those wins gives me hope. And, and it, it also allows me to say to people, I know it may seem hard right now when we still in some areas can't even talk about these things. You know, 15 years ago when I was arrested for just having weed on me, I never would have believed that a guy on, on the house floor would be wearing a, a pot leaf on his mask while voting to legalize cannabis. So yes. we are making progress. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So now we're gonna switch into the more, actually before we do that, I wanted to ask you a question about your podcast. So how long have you been doing that podcast? Yeah, so I started the podcast in uh, early February of this year. And I started it because, um, you know, I, I saw the writing on the wall that this uh, coronavirus was going to be as bad as they said. And uh, unfortunately, it's been worse. Uh, so I knew I needed a way to get this message out there if I wasn't going to be able to do my public speaking during the year 2020. And so I started the podcast and I've been really lucky that it's taken off to the extent that it has. Mm -hmm. um, now, I also don't want to minimize, minimize the hard work it took to get that. You know, yes, a luck has been a long part, a big part of it um, that people have said yes and, and that I've had incredible guests, but also I was fortunate in the sense that I was able to devote myself to this because my normal job was being taken away from me. So I've right. spent you know, instead of this being, you know, let's say 10 hours a week, um, as it probably should have been, there were weeks where I was given 30, 40, 50 hours of this thing, growing it, uh, working on my craft, that kind of thing. And so yes, luck is a huge part of it. But also, I don't want to give people the impression that podcasts are easy. As you know, yourself, they are so hard. And to make it good is even harder. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, congratulations on your podcast. I think that's awesome. Thank you. And um, so we're gonna to switch to the next segment of this um, interview. This is more, I consider the fun segment. Yay, exactly. <laughs> Cause it's about music. Yeah. So with that said, um, as you can see behind me, there are two, some books. Yeah. The book is called The Music of My Life. And basically that's my story about my journey with bipolar. Mm -hmm. um, basically, and I talk about music therapy and how it's very helpful. So my question to you is what type of music do you like? Oh man. 
Uh, well, we should do an entire episode on this. Uh, so uh, I, right before we came on, I was listening to, to Sia. Uh, I am a huge pop, like just kind of pop. And, and you know, if you want to call uh, Ariana Grande and Sia, Justin Bieber, like, yeah, it's all pop. But then also they, you know, occasionally guys will, will rap or, or, um, or, you know, slip into R&B or whatever the case is. So mm-hmm. sort of that corner of the music world. Um, I got to especially throw out Ariana Grande because her her album Thank You Next I think is one of the best mental health uh, albums out there. Also Kesha is like that. Kesha's albums are almost all dedicated to mental health and I really love her for that. Uh, She's sort of my my big get. If I can get her on my podcast that's my dream. I would love to interview Kesha. Uh, I'm sorry? No I said that would be amazing. It would be. I would. Love, she has a new podcast, and it's 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 incredible. So, um, definitely a big fan of pop. Uh, I grew up on on sort of two camps: hip hop. I've been a hip hop head my whole life. Uh, I think that you know I grew up on Common, Quali, uh, early Kanye. Um, you know, so guys like that. Uh, Watch the Throne. I think is an incredible album. Kanye and Jay Z and. Uh, you know, I was a big Tupac and Biggie fan. I think Biggie's Ready to Die is one of the greatest albums uh, of all time. Uh, but also the Beatles, uh, you know, I, I actually have Here Comes the Sun tattooed on my feet. I got that during my darkest days. And, and uh, my wife and I walked down the aisle to do to two different Beatles songs when we got married a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, definitely a diverse taste in music. I'm also a big jazz guy. I have about 800 vinyl collection. My, that's been my number one baby most of my life been collecting since I was 16. And uh, I would say probably 20% is the Beatles, another 20% is jazz, and the rest is is hip hop and, and um, pop and, and uh, rock. Amazing. You're so eclectic. <laughs> I really, love the that. only thing I don't listen to is country. Uh, I like some good bluegrass, <laughs> but I can't get into country. It's, right. it's just, it, quite frankly, it's a little too white for me. Um, I've never lived that life and I can't really identify with it as much. So uh, props to them, but I'm not a big country guy. Okay. Okay. So with that said, if you were to think of a song that best describes your journey, what would it be and why? Well, so I've been giving this a lot of thinking since I first responded to you and here comes the sun is the one I said, and I think that's a great one. And, you know, obviously it's very personal to me. I literally have it tattooed on my body. Um, so that's, that's a big one for sure. That's the song my wife, my, uh, walked down the aisle to when, when we got married, I walked down the aisle to all you need is love. Uh, so those two are, are definitely important. Uh, as far as my journey though, I think, uh, the, the, um, suicides hotline song by, by, uh, logic. And, and there's another guy who's dedicated a lot of his work to mental health. A lot of people listen, you know, we listen to songs, we don't really get the lyrics sometimes. And Logic literally released a song, and the title is The Suicide Hotline, 1-800-whatever. And it's all about how there's a person who wants to commit suicide, and Logic singing them, like, you know, I want you to be alive, and that kind of stuff. And so it is, um, you know, we just had our wrap of, of, two, of 2020 on, on um on Spotify. And that was my number three listened to song in the last year, because I think it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other answer, my last one is um, Rockabye Sweet Baby James by James Taylor. Uh, I have a very personal connection with that song. He actually wrote that song while leaving the same long-term care facility that I was in. Uh, the second verse of that song is, 
uh, all about, you know, the Berkshires are beautiful in the fall with, with 10 miles behind me and 10,000 more to go, which is, a, which is a saying in recovery, right? We've, you know, we've made it this far with 10 and not only that, uh, I stayed in the same room he did in this long-term care facility. So um, there are times that I'm already feeling a little more vulnerable when I hear that song and I just start bawling because it's like a, a perfect reminder of he, him and I both literally were in this terrible spot and, and, and have made it, you know, going forward. Amazing. So what would you say, what does music do for you with um, your mental <laughs> health? What would you say it does for you? Yeah, man. Um, you know, everybody who struggles with mental health has their sort of plan when things are rough, right? And, and for me, you know, I know if I'm in a rough spot, putting on the Beatles always helps. Um, I also know that if I need to sit there for a minute, putting on a song that helps me um, sort of be present and be in that mood, like I've already mentioned, Rock by Sweet Baby James mm -hmm. uh, and the Suicide Hotline song by, by Logic. Um, and also, you know, the opposite too, when, when I want to get pumped up and I want to, I want to feel better, you know, putting on something, um, there I'm, I'm a big fan, like I said, of hip hop and, and my vinyl collection, if I need to, I can go over there and pick out anything that I'm feeling, whether it's a, you know, a good Bob Marley song or, 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 um, you know, a, a good folk song. I'm, I'm big in this guy named, uh, Gregory Allen Isaacov, who is a uh, folk singer from, from Colorado, uh, who is fantastic you know, people like that, or if I want to put on some Kesha or some Ariana Grande, you know, I've got it all. So uh, it really is a constant companion uh, to my life. Cool, cool. That is awesome. I love it. So with that said, how can we stay in touch with you? What are your social media handles? <laughs> so I am uh, Jay Schiffman, which is J-J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N, or Choose Your Struggle on every social media. My podcast is Choose Your Struggle. My website is jshiffman.com. Although if you type in chooseyourstruggle.com, it will direct you to jshiffman.com. So uh, those two terms, you can find me anywhere. Um, I actually have uh, the patent on, on Choose Your Struggle. Uh, not the patent, that's not the right word. The, uh, what do you call it? When Thank you. The trademark. So there are other people who use that term out there. I'm not the, I'm not that asshole who's going to go demand they they get rid of uh, my 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 hashtag. But um, if you search "choose your struggle" and you go down three or four, you'll find you know the podcast and all my stuff. So awesome. Okay. So with that said, I want to thank you very much, Doug. Uh, sorry, not Doug. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jay, for taking their time to come on this interview. I. I think people are going to definitely enjoy your stories. Um, there were definitely there was a lot of um, there was a lot of nuggets that you can take from it. <laughs> so, with that said, and to all you resilient minds out there, until next time, please subscribe to us on all our platforms and don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Also, join the community of resilient minds and sign up for our monthly newsletter at cleonicrawford.com. Be sure to grab a copy of my book, The Music of My Life, on all Amazon marketplaces to get to know me better. And if you can think of one person that will receive value from today's show or connect with Jay's testimonial, please share it with them. Feel free to take a screenshot of this week's episode of the podcast and tag us on Instagram. You can tag myself at Only Cleone or Resilient Minds 365 and today's guest at Jay Schiffman. And remember, mental health is not a death sentence. Despite your illness, you can strive, you can thrive, and you can live a life of abundance. Until next time, I'm Cleone Crawford, and I'm signing off.
Let's go.